Eclectic Spacewalk presents Conversations, a podcast about the uniqueness of the human condition and how, through conversation, we can continue to upgrade humanity's value systems. Everyone has a subjective, awe-inspiring viewpoint of our reality, and the goal of this podcast is to have conversations with unique humans. Eclectic Spacewalk means a broad and diverse range of Earth-based philosophies viewed from outer space. Send us any recommendations on who we should talk to next. But remember, we are not just a podcast. You can subscribe to our Substack newsletter and get first access to every podcast episode at eclecticspacewalk.substack.com. Connect with us on social media by following us on Twitter at eSpacewalk and the hashtag EclecticSpacewalk. Find us on Minds.com at EclecticSpacewalk. And as always, you can find everything on the website, EclecticSpacewalk.com. We want to talk with anyone over our shared humanity and best practices of life. Now, let's have a conversation. Hey everyone, welcome to Eclectic Spacewalk Conversations. I'm Nick McKay and here is Millicent Alley, author and poet of The Tales of the Human Condition. So today we're here to talk to her about uh, her life experience and how she came to write this collection of poems and then what she's been doing since and we'll uh, listen to some poetry after a short break. So first let's get into it. Um, so Millicent, where are you from originally? So. Long story, I'm going to try to sum it up short. I'm actually born in Los Angeles, but my parents divorced when I was still very young, about three, mm -hmm. three and a half. Mm -hmm. My mother remarried. My stepfather was from Atlanta, Georgia. So okay. from the time I was five until I migrated back to L.A., I was raised in right outside of Atlanta. So by birth, I'm a native Californian, but by upbringing, I'm Southern through and through. <laughs> and that gives us a little connection. Uh, I'm being from Chattanooga, Tennessee, not that far from Atlanta. Yeah. So that, that Southern influence is, is very, uh, very true. So what, what would you say some of those, if you're born from LA, what did you get from there? And then what if, uh, you know, influences in the South, what did you get? Like some, I, I know manners are big in the South yeah. you know, for us and things like that. So Well... So the interesting thing is because my mother was from the West Coast and grew up in L.A., my household was very liberal and very open and very, um, I was allowed to question a lot okay. and investigate. And my mother was really big on, like, I guess a lot of black people at that time, Egyptian culture and okay. like Egyptians were sure, black and sure. researching and Zora Neale Hurston and Alice Walker and that kind of stuff so I grew up reading a lot of that kind of stuff and that influenced me and it was a very uh uh search for information kind of okay, household sure. my mother loved reading my mother was a painter and a sketcher so it was very, very creative artistic it was very creative okay. artistic and then growing up in Georgia it was interesting because yeah there's a lot of manners yes sir yes ma'am mm -hmm. and you grow up in this kind of almost unflexible kind of uh it's not rigid that's not the word i'm looking mm -hmm. for but there's very structured of a way you're supposed to behave and present yes. yourself and <laughs> as a lady you never go out without lipstick and uh -huh. you always look your best and dress nice and you go to church on sunday right. 
which when I would come to LA and visit, nobody followed it. <laughs> People are just like living life in their t-shirts and flip flops. Well, and here. so what age group, what t- give us a, like kind of an age range. So if you're born in LA up until what age? Five. Okay. Five. And then I go- have very little memories of LA. Sure. My memories of LA are when my mother would ship me off for the summers to come stay with my grandparents oh, so out just here. Like random kind of memory. just okay. the summers. Okay. And then actually for a little while, I think my parents were, my mom and my stepfather were having marital problems, and I actually stayed with my grandparents for a whole year when I was in fifth grade. I was 10, and I went to CES, Center for Enriched Studies. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm, For one year. Okay. Yeah. So a little bit of back and forth between Georgia and L.A. I always say that I'm so happy I grew up in Georgia. (laughs) (laughs) So then take us after that. Then age group or or age kind of, where do you move? How? How old were you? Um, again, I've been... I've Back been, to L.A.? Just in L.A. for that one year. Oh, and okay. then that was just for fifth grade. They it. worked it out, figured out whatever was going uh-huh. on in their marriage. And then I was back by sixth grade when I was I 11. See, I see, I see. So it was just a single year. But within that, you you know, you pick up different things. Uh, L.A. always seems strange to me. I never really... Even though you know their kids here, you don't really see kids here unless you're a kid and you're going to school with them. But looking back now as an adult, I'm like, I walk around and I don't really notice kids here. Right. Okay. okay. But in Georgia, like, it was open space and freedom right. and playing and you were in the woods and you were playing in Last the creeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you were just yeah. outside and you would be outside as long as you came home before dark. That was kind of the thing. I mean, I'm the oldest of three boys and like we lived in a neighborhood with, you know, kids our age and stuff. And it yeah. was, that's literally what it was. You know, you were up at 8 a.m. like doing stuff and then you say, hey, mom, I'm going to be back. And then it's like you're gone until All like, day. you know, till until seven or something because you're doing, you know, riding bikes or doing this, playing more. It was just a fun time. But yeah, I could see that like in LA people were maybe a little bit more, uh, uh, Garden, yeah, guarding guarded. their yeah, kids yeah, yeah. yeah and you couldn't go as far like at my grandparents house we could play in the front yard the backyard and then we could go over to the next door neighbor because my grandfather knew that person right so we could go one house over in georgia i would rip and run up and down my whole street i lived on a street that was a cul-de-sac right and i mean i and i was at the beginning of the street and i would go all the way down to the cul-de-sac and I knew everyone on my street, and especially the ones that had kids my age. Mm -hmm. Their doors were open. We could run in and get water and use the bathroom and run back out. So, Melissa, what were kind of your more writing influences? So, like I said, my mother was a writer and a painter Mm -hmm. and a sketcher. So, she was this closeted writer that never got to really fulfill her passion. She probably should have been a writer, but she had me really young, and so then she had to work. Oh, okay. And she became a cosmetologist. Mm-hmm. But she always wrote. So my earliest memories of writing are my mother. She was working on a novel, and I remember being about seven, maybe eight. And there was no one else for her to read her stuff to. So she would grab me in the bed and she would read me chapters. And then she would ask me, what did I think? Who did I like? Who could I keep up with as far as like the story of the character? What stood out for me? Mm -hmm. And those were my first memories of really thinking about characters and story and writing was sitting in the bed next to my mom, hearing chapters from her book. And from that point on, I loved storytelling because I could 
disappear and go someplace else even though I was sitting there in a room with my mom Mm -hmm. it took me to another world that I could see so vividly in my mind and so that was the first real thing that triggered something in me and from there I started writing little little tiny doodles little Mm -hmm. tiny like couple of words here and there and really something coming into my being I think I was around 12 when I really started like formulating poems right and then so so from that did you was your mother very encouraging in that regard or did you maybe have a teacher that kind of pushed you along in that like in those type of influences or was it kind of more self-made of this is what you just wanted to kind of it was just self-made my mother didn't know my mother just only found out recently that I wrote poetry or that I even write. It wasn't something I ever shared with her. She kind of started this little, planted this seed in me, uh-huh. and I kind of just quietly did it. It was a way for me when I was an only child, right. so it was a way for me to deal with sadness or sure. heartbreak or unhappiness with my life and the world that I saw or anything that was going on with me. It was my way of releasing it and Mm -hmm. not letting it sit and fester within myself. Okay. And then, so that brings us to this, uh, 14 poem. I like (laughs) this. Cause I mean, you say you're at 12 years old, you know, you're kind of reading, uh, and writing and that was the first thing I really ever wrote that I was like, wow, I kind of like this. Right. Here. And I was 14 when I wrote it, and so that's why it's titled 14. Well, let's let's have you read it, and then we'll kind of just listen in on, and just, you know, go about. Because uh, this is interesting to me, because this is kind of you formulating your own kind of subjective, hey, this is me. My name is Millicent Rachel Alley. I am a member of the human race. I observe and participate in this life, finding it a cold, cruel world, but is the world as I was born into it. I ponder this question, and it is how I find myself. Who am I? I am a young woman in a male-dominated world, but I plan to demolish that thought. Who am I? I am a member of a world where money talks and bullshit walks. Who am I? I am a woman with just one life to live, such a short time to cram education, knowledge, wisdom, and all the essential tools for success into my brain and make them pay off before... Time and death take its toll on me physically. Who am I? I am a person who walks along a lonely road, a person who will open many doors, searching, looking, hoping to find that utopia that makes life worth living, envisioning that tangible but intangible great American dream. Who am I? I have not yet fully discovered myself, but I keep from the pitfalls that pull so many others out of the race. Who am I? I am not sure, but each day I live, I am that much closer to knowing. I have learned there are some questions one may never be able to completely answer, but still, I ask myself in the silence and the quiet of the night, who am I? Who am I? Who am I? So with that, you said you've you've learned some of these questions um, and kind of you have you're not fully discovering yourself what has changed kind of since then though like so you're 14 and then now you know kind of things have changed you know have you realized some of those things or it's as the has it become different your goals obviously since from 14 but like talk about the difference of how you see the world than you were when you were 14 i don't 
think I see the world as such a cruel, cold place. Mm -hmm. I feel like I had a lot of angst in my teenage years and I was really, really angry. And a lot of that has subsided. I think with age, you mellow mm -hmm. and you become more grateful and mm -hmm. more appreciative because life is really long, but sure. then it's short at the same time. Especially if you get to a certain age, you f see that I have a certain amount of time to do all these things. And, and I could be angry, upset of the way the world is set up, mm -hmm. or I can just put my head down and do the best that I can mm -hmm. and appreciate every day in the opportunities that are around me. And so I feel that from that angsty teen, I turned into this really light, happy, very grateful and appreciative person that now is looking just to still fulfill the dreams that I has as that 14 year old. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the big things that I've seen in, in a lot of this is you're like, we'll go to life, you know. So basically, Tales of the Human Condition, uh, you know, I, I love that because we really don't understand what this human condition is. Like, we're a biological creature, and I think you, you've mentioned it. It's like we're more of a spiritual creature inside of a biological. Inside kind of, of a, like a fleshly shell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So in that, like, I think that there's like a duality of sorts that you kind of talk about in their first uh um, pillar of life in that a compendium of variety and varying states of awareness existence is both a personal matter and one of awareness existence is both a personal matter and one which encompasses the entirety of mankind yeah and so it's like like you said you, you saw it one way when you were 14 you've kind of come with some maturity on this side so i mean do you really see it as more of that duality of a feedback loop now i mean because like there's some aspects that are cruel obviously but you know, you, it seems like you've been cultured and mature enough to then see them for what they're worth. You know, it's life. Um, so I believe in reincarnation. Mm -hmm. And I believe that we come down into this physical plane in mm -hmm. order to experience certain things that you couldn't explain to a, 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 phys, a, a non-physical mm -hmm. intelligence. And you come down into this physical body so you have structure and confines and limits and you learn certain things in each life. Right. And so within that, I think that each life brings challenges and that creates your spiritual growth and evolution until eventually, hopefully, that you become this ultralight being and you don't have to come down into this physical plane. But I do believe in duality because if you don't have sadness, you don't actually understand and appreciate joy. Mm -hmm. And so you have to have the yin and the yang and the reverse of the coin to actually understand its opposite. Right. And that's and that's interesting because you you mentioned kind of rebirth. And a lot there's a lot of homages in here to rebirth of you've gone through struggles and then you kind of like use those struggles as fuel to then become a new person. Yeah, to you know, push that, you forward to propel you to something better than what you saw hopefully or better than what you've experienced right 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 and then there's i think there's one let me find it did you kind of mention it even more yeah so here in the third section introspection mm -hmm. so it's like your death rebirth of ego um so by acknowledging my character flaws and accepting my own shortcomings with love forgiveness and a willing to change i improve my humanity so, yeah. you know, you really... That's a hard one. I talk about that quite a bit because, you know, I grew up in a household where you had to be perfect. My mother right. was no nonsense. And 
you had to do all your work and you had to get good grades and you had to be that old school value of seen and not heard. Mm, So it was very much, you couldn't cause any problems. (laughs) And so you get into this thing and even today I, I deal and cope with trying to be perfect. And I know there's no such thing as perfection, Mm. but you get, there's sometimes no room for error and that's a really right. hard way to live and it doesn't let you be that forgiving on yourself let alone other people so it's been something that I've worked on and I'm more forgiving with other people than I am even on myself I beat myself up so right. much totally. to the point so yeah it's it's part of my own personal internal struggle that I still deal with thinking that I have to be perfect for someone to love me I have to be perfect for this I have to like all these things that I know I understand intellectually they're not true but somewhere deep down inside of me it was banged into me and I have to work against that and I mean we're all learning and growing in that specific thing that we're unlearning biases from like our parents culture history environments yeah (laughs) you're 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 poured into up until a certain age and then you become 18 and then you're like out into the world and then you have to decipher that well, all this stuff I learned wasn't necessarily true. And right. what do I want to keep? What serves me? And what doesn't serve me? And hopefully I let go of the things that don't serve me. And I only keep the things that actually help me to become the me that I want to be. Right. And then it's going back to the, not the just duality, but then also perfection. As you, you said in your introduction in the, in the, the last um, uh, pillar, if you will, of God, Suddenly, I understood that whatever I write is perfect. Perfection exists in everything said and unsaid because all exist in God. The duality exists simultaneously with that which is complete, perfect, and whole. So that kind of sums up, you know, both of those things because you know you went out to <laughs> try like, and write about I'm God. Like, Did I most, write that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you went to go try and do something of to talk about infinity, and I mean, how how hard is that as a writer to try and encompass something so large? But but at the same time, as you you rightly put, after after long kind of introspection, you come to the point. Well, whatever I write is perfect, you know. Yeah, it's my per- it's my it's my truth. Exactly. Yeah, it, it, it's you know we're just all works in progress. And I'm literally sometimes I hear my stuff and I'm like, did I write that? I'm like thinking out loud. I'm this is a way for me to work out the stuff that's going sure. on with me internally. And so yeah, these are the thoughts that I'm having in because I was an only child, mm-hmm. I never had anyone to distract me from me. Mm-hmm. So I was constantly analyzing myself and looking at me. Right, right. And then within that, being alone also makes you start thinking and questioning the things that... So you look at yourself and then you start looking at everything else around you trying to make sense of it. And so then I was constantly questioning outside of me too because I didn't have a brother and sister to distract like I would go over to other people's houses and people were getting hit and, and mom, so-and-so did A lot this of external factors. Yeah, yeah, a lot yeah, of things yeah. to distract yeah. you. And so I had all this time by myself just to sit and be. Right. And like I said, my mother, I was a latchkey kid before the term was even coined. I was letting myself in and out the house at like in the third grade. See, that's so interesting because like I'm the oldest of three boys and it's the opposite. Like there's only external factors and then it's been a real trying to, you know, do internal work and yeah. work on that because, you know, all my, now all my time spent with myself is, is great and it's working on it, but it's like, that's not what I was doing at all growing up. You yeah. know, it was all just sports and 
hanging out with your brothers and friends and yeah, this and that. Yeah, it's totally the opposite you know? for me. I was in a room <laughs> reading books. My mother was an avid reader, so I told you she was giving me books, Robert Louis Stevenson right. poetry books. And then she also tried to find, there was this author, I can't remember her last name, but her first name was Millicent. Because I used to hate my name when I was little. I was like, everybody makes fun of me. Nobody has this name. And I'm like a little black girl named Millicent. Like, there's no black girls named in Georgia Millicent. named Millicent. People are like, oh. When people would say they knew someone with my, my name, it was like their great-great-grandmother, sure. old older white woman named Millicent or their great-aunt. And so, like, you know, being in a black city, people would... They would make fun of my name. Oh yeah, my my great or my grandmother's first like her first name, her real name was Opal. Ooh, and it's yeah. like that's that old that's old. old, <laughs> old. <laughs> my name is from that era. My yeah. name is from like Gertrude and Mildred sure. and that kind of era of those old turn of the century names that just kind of died out. I love my name now, but yeah. So yeah, it was it was it was hard. Okay, so let's uh, so we'll talk about like exactly what you were kind of going through when you wrote this. So like let's go to so Tales of the Human Condition set the stage for kind of what you were going through in life, what was going on, like internal and ex- external cuz as you said, like it seems like you work on yourself a lot, but yeah. then as well like obviously there's external factors that yeah, happen. Yeah, life happens and you're like working and Yeah, so to give it set us a the stage. Um so it's really strange how Tales of the Human Condition came about because I never sh- really shared or talked about that I wrote poetry to anyone. Mm-hmm. It was a very quiet, personal thing that I did, and it was like me going to the therapist. So you, it was a very cathartic thing? It was a very yeah. cathartic yeah. thing, me going to the therapist. And whenever I was... I generally write when I'm sad. Poetry, that is. I generally like write poetry when I'm sad pondering questioning or confused sure okay i don't necessarily write poetry when i'm happy when you're happy you're just happy you're out and you're living your life you're doing things (laughs) and so this is like when you're like you're come to jesus moment and you need to figure some stuff out and work some things out for yourself that's what writing poetry was and is for me um so i think this started in like two thousand and eight maybe mm-hmm. nine ish and I had a friend and I went to Agape mm-hmm. and he was just a friend. He actually wrote the the beginning okay, the of Ford, the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for yeah. Mr. Schwartz. Yeah. And we would talk about stuff and just share things and then somehow or another I started reading some of my poems to him. And he was like wow, this is really good. Yeah, right? <laughs> and then I was just like, oh, okay, that's nice. And then I would share something else. I was like, I was kind of like, what do you think about this? And so it got to be a thing where I shared some stuff with him. And then I had this other woman in my life that I shared some stuff with, uh, Regine Vavasur. She's another like kind of mentor friend in my mm-hmm. life. And I shared some stuff with her. And they both kind of at the same time told me that I should put my poetry together and do something with it and I was like really I was kind of like seriously and she was like yeah you should really and he's like yeah you should really do something he's like if you do something I'll write the the forward for you and write something nice it's like I really think it's good and I was like okay and so that kind of started me kind of like working on it it took 
basically like three years because I really didn't have enough stuff to do a book. I had a little poem here and a little poem there and I didn't know how I was going to connect it because they were kind of all on these different topics. And it took you, and these, some of these poems are years old, right? Yeah. You're, you're kind of picking and choosing and then writing and as it comes and experiencing life. Exactly. So I had some of it, but some of it I had to write. So then it was like another year and a half, two years of writing because, um, the first version of it, I should have, I still have yeah. the first version of it. I gave it to Greg to look at. Yeah. And then he's like, yeah, it's good. I think you need a little more. And he's like, and you need to kind of come up with a concept. Exactly. And I was like, concept. And I was like, okay. And so when I started looking at the poems, I put them on the floor and I was just start, starting to see what were they about. Mm-hmm. And then these categories mm-hmm. kept coming up. Like I think I had five, six, seven, and like four poems. and But they were all on the same subject sure. matters. And so that's kind of when the name came to me. I was like, well, what is this all about? I was like, it's about my human existence, my human mm. condition, like me being down here in flesh. And I was like, okay, there's the name. Right. It's Tales of My Human Condition. Sure. And then that's how I got the life, love, introspection, and God, because every single thing that I had seemed mm-hmm. to fall into one of those categories. And so then after that, I just focused and wrote Whatever was lacking, like I didn't have as much stuff on God. I had more stuff on life. And so then I start writing things that were geared towards how I felt about God or some intelligence that created me in the world and outside of myself. So it was really, it wasn't like you went out to, to look at the, it was more like ad hoc. Like, yeah, okay, I have these things that I've already kind of experienced. Oh, wait, I think there's a trend here and a, more of a theme. Mm-hmm. And then as you write, you're you're like, oh, yeah, there are these kind of four pillars and then as well in the creative process it's like oh well I'm heavy on this yeah I need to write over here on this exactly so that it was kind of like more even or more full spectrum about how I felt about each category yeah or each pillar and then that overall concept was your human condition yeah and within that human condition the things that always came up for me was life so is the outside world love which is romantic love but also having relationships and interactions with someone outside of yourself and then of course I've always been very introspective and like looking at myself and examining and and trying to figure me out and then coming to some overall understanding of something bigger than you and outside yourself that puts you here for a reason Mm -hmm. which is God and some infinite intelligence um and and coming to terms with that and within coming to terms with God, coming to terms with your own mortality sure. and that eventually you're not going to be here anymore. And what are you going to leave behind? I mean, so, yeah, the, you'll someday we'll all be fi- finite, but... Well, know. even within that, like, I find it, we're all going to die. And so, but I find it really interesting that at a certain age, you everyone realizes that you're one day not going to be here, but people get so sad and so emotional over death and I've never been one of those people when someone passes that I get like people weeping and moaning and going through all this stuff it seems so illogical to me like you understand that part of this life and getting to be here means one day you're not and you make room for someone else to come and be here and take this space and have an experience and 
if you love someone and got to spend time with them in this earthly pain, well, isn't that the gift? And so why would you mm -hmm. be sad about them going mm -hmm. on to someplace else? And so I'm not one of these sad, weepy people about death. And so I find it interesting because it just seems like, well, you know I'm going to die, right? You know you're yeah. going to die, right? Well, it's, it's, it, I, I mean, it's not to say that they haven't thought enough about it or maybe they're insecure about it, but like one of my favorite things, as you mentioned, it's like that's something that everyone literally goes through. Like yeah. it's you have to you have to deal with your own mortality. I think at the one of my favorite philosophers, Alan Watts, says he's like, you know, children do this, you know, kind of thing of what is what would it be like to then have, you know, to go to sleep and never wake up? You know, like, what is what is that going to be like? And then he pauses it around on the opposite and says, okay, well, what was it like when you basically woke up without having going to sleep? And that's when you were born. And yeah. it's like, when you flip it around like that, it's just a thing that just happens. And Or maybe it's a, some type of experience that was the only thing that was similar, which is the opposite, which is birth. And so it's just very interesting to see how, you know, your entire life kind of dictates on how you look at your own mortality yeah you know? i mean i think my mortality is it, it drives me to push me to like hit certain marks or targets mm -hmm. um i don't know how good i've been doing on that <laughs> try we must try we must but sure, sure. you know it pushes me to fight and to not give up and to keep pushing myself harder and harder to uh do the things that i want to do again i have fears like anyone else and you know but you you keep taking sure. steps in the direction of where you want to go. Well, so tell us, then we'll go back to, how, okay, so you bring all this. It's been a three-year kind of project. Mm -hmm. you, it kind of is, you know, spurred on by people that yeah. believe in you and then you, you, you're, yourself. But then you publish it. Now tell us what happens. And then maybe tell us a little bit about the actual process of publishing because I know that you also self I self-published. And it exactly. was really interesting It really... <laughs> Uh, taught me how resourceful I am sure. and um, how I could really put something together on my own. I found every single person that did the graphics, mm -hmm. um, the, the person who uh, was the editor and, you know, and then the guy who laid it out in InDesign, I found the people to print it. I mean, I did every step of the process myself and then right. I even did an audio version sure. and I had a guy... Uh, Nate, uh, <laughs> who did original music for each poem, because I felt like if you're going to listen to a poem, like it should have an emotional uh, 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 music in the background, sure. okay. uh, emotional choreography, not choreography, but uh, emotional song behind it. And he took each poem and created music, and he would let me, he's like, is this the feeling that you want for? And it was really <laughs> interesting. So um, that was an interesting process. It that's what slowed me down a little bit. Sure. I mean, I guess it may have never even happened if I had to try to send it out to someone. Good point. But when you're doing something on your own, you do one part and pay for it, and then you have to make some more money, and then you do the next part and pay for it, right. and then you have to make some more money. So it's like strategic step by step, and then you figure out how much everything's gonna cost, and right. then you do it till you get finished. <laughs> uh, so then, okay, but now it's finished. It's you finished. I finished and, then... and I published it. And I honestly didn't really have any idea how to promote it or how to get it out there. Um, I ordered a lot of books. Because <laughs> it was inexpensive the more books you ordered. Sure, sure. And so I sent them out to like 
every woman's magazine. I sent them out to, I sent it to Maya Angelou. I sent it to, Maya Angelou actually sent it back because I guess she, her team or whatever, she could get in trouble and people say, oh, she stole something of hers. I sent her a book. Uh, so they don't even, they don't even read it. They just, sorry, (laughs) thank you. And I can't accept it. But I sent it out to a lot of women's magazines and different um, authors like Maya Angelou type Uh people. Uh And, and then I sold some to friends and then gave it out. And then I gave some to a couple of bookstores and stuff like that. And then I I did a page on Facebook, like, Mm -hmm. you know, the logical things, but I didn't really know how to actually get people to look at it and read it. Right. But it was just a sense of accomplishment for doing the whole project from beginning to end and actually creating something that I'm proud of and I guess obviously stood the test of time because yeah. here I am talking to you right. seven seven years, years later. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, that I mean, has to say something. I, I, I thought so. I mean, I saw it at Goodwill for, you know, I, I'm always in the in the hunt for new books, especially cheaper books. Like, yeah. Because, I mean, Barnes & Noble and Amazon and everything, like, it gets expensive just for wanting to get some like new knowledge, read. you yeah. know, and stuff. And so I'm perusing around and, uh, and then literally I think it was the kind of artwork or, or whatever was like, oh, and then I mentioned, you know, human condition. I was like, what is that? And uh-huh. then I keep reading. I'm like, wait a second. This person just had a po- collection of poetry. You know what I mean? Like, okay, like one ninety nine. Okay, and then I start looking, and then I see that you basically went. Uh, you were in Santa Monica doing like a writers boot camp stuff yeah. around that time, or at least on the back of the book. And I was like, wait a second, I could just call her or you know e- email her and see what she's doing. Like, come talk about this because obviously now that we kind of prefaced all of this, like what the tales of the human condition, your uh, upbringing. And stuff, but then what has changed? Obviously, because seven years is a long time. It like is a there, long time. There's some growth in there. I'm assuming there's a lot of other things that probably life, love, love. introspection, and God. So, like, what are some of those things that you've been kind of going through? Well, after that, I did. I went to the writers boot camp in Santa Monica, and I did their two year screenwriting program. Um, and then. I kind of halfway finished a script through that. It was a little hard juggling. You, I realized as a writer, you need to write every single day and you right. need to have a structured schedule. Mm-hmm. And I work in the entertainment industry. And so I work really long hours. I sure. work average 10 to 12 hours. Mm-hmm. Doesn't leave much room for writing. And you have to be very disciplined and very structured to squeeze and sneak writing. Not sneak, but get it in there. Get an a every day. <laughs> and um, I really learned about myself I'm not that structured of a person. I'm a real free hippie granola, free spirit type person. And I never really had structure with my writing. I wrote when I felt like it emotionally. And so from that experience, um, I became a little more structured with my writing. And I learned to uh, write down anytime I had an idea for stuff. So it gave me an idea for two more scripts and a sci-fi novel within that time. And so I did really good outlines within that time and wrote part of a script that I still haven't gone back to. Um, but yeah, I, I got after this and, and trying to promote it and then going to school, I literally kind of took a break from yeah. thinking about anything writing because I, I was a little, I don't know if sad's the word or disappointed. I just felt a little exhausted. I'm not one of those people. I'm not a self promoter. Mm -hmm. And so having to talk about myself makes me 
slightly uncomfortable sure. and I'm not really good at taking compliments either. So when people say stuff to me, I'm like, I don't really res- right. respond to compliments. <laughs> it's really weird. Sometimes people think like I'm being rude or I'm stuck up. They'll be like, oh, I really like that. And I'm like, I don't know how to take it. So I sometimes don't say anything. And sometimes I'm like, oh, okay, thanks. Like, right. you know, um, that comes from my upbringing too, that I never got praised for anything I did mm-hmm. or compliments. And then so being older and people saying, praising you or giving compliments, sometimes I don't know how to take it or I brush, oh, I brush over it. I almost right. don't accept it in and I kind of like brush over it. And that's not good or great. <laughs> but so after that whole experience, I was a little exhausted from thinking about writing and having to talk about myself and sure. like promote. Because that's what you have to do. That's literally what you have to do. You have to say, I have this book and it's really amazing. And I think like the nerve oh, to yeah. say that your book is, how do you know your book's really amazing? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. But that's what you have to do. Yeah, and then other like, people then right. say, yeah, your book's really good. You know, so I'm not really that great at that. I'm getting better <laughs> at that. And so I didn't really have much success with it. And it kind of made me slightly fearful mm-hmm. of writing and doing the next stuff that I had ideas for that I thought might be really good. Right. Well, I mean, we'll, we'll do everything to kind of shout it out and uh-huh. do things Yay. like that and link it, et cetera, uh, for in the show notes and stuff. So that, that's definitely not a problem. But one, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is like, so now in 2019, the tales of the human condition. So we started off with the four pillars of life, love, introspection, and God. So would you, in 2019, keep those same four? Would you add one or two, three? Would you subtract maybe one and change it to another? I mean, or would you kind of just... Those, those are absolutely <laughs> my pillars. Okay. When, I, when I go into my mind and in my quiet space of who I am, I'm thinking about life, which is the world around me. I'm thinking about constantly getting better as a person and being the best version of myself that Mm -hmm. I can be. So that's introspection. Mm -hmm. The love life has fallen off quite a bit. (laughs) Or, you know, that part of romantic love, I haven't had time to really deal with that. But it's still in my heart that, you know, I would like to get married and have intimacy with another human being and connect on a deeper, deeper level. That's always permeating my mind and resonating. Well, love. I mean, that's that's one of your biggest things that you talk about. Yeah. And then God is always going to be there. So, and, and, and spirituality and, and having some understanding of why I chose to come down in this body in this time and choose to be Millicent Alley Mm -hmm. in this time and space, in this place and history in the world. So, that's always going to be relevant to me and, 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 and be turning and turning, trying to make sense of all of this. Right. Well, so, okay. So then we'll wrap up this first part. Uh, we're going to take a short break here in a second. Um, but basically then this is my podcast or my website is called eclectic spacewalk. So yeah. it's literally, you know, eclectic. If you take that down, that's a broad and diverse range of philosophies of how you see the world. Mm-hmm. And then spacewalk is obviously from someone, you know, imagine yourself on the international space station looking down and even better on the moon, looking down at earth. So you're, you know, spacewalking. So it's a broad range of philosophies from the out view of, you know, the God perspective almost of almost in that fourth law. So what I'm going to basically ask in all of the next podcasts and our conversations, you know, series is if you really were kind of say at that 
that level. Imagine yourself at the you know International Space Station or the moon, and then literally every, the, the world is looking at you. What would you say? What would you have to? Would it be something of you know gratitude, or would it be something of you know the future? What what would Millicent Alley say? Because like you said you've kind of become, you're the outlet of the eternal, if you will, you know, because your subjective experience is, is yours and yours alone. So what would you say to kind of the world, if you will? I would say we're more alike than different and we get caught up on external, the, the external of our physicality to separate us. And in doing that, that makes us not see the, the whole world in the connectedness that we are. Mm-hmm. And it separates us and creates this division. And I feel like as human beings, we haven't learned from our history and our past. And we're still fighting over the same things that we've been fighting over since the dawn of man. And it's halting our progress from us being the super beings that we could actually be. Mm-hmm. And even on a greater, bigger scale of something that's happening right now, it's scary that we're still in fighting with each other on the planet over resources and who looks like what and who has access to this. And then if we really don't get it together, we're going to cause our own extinction and we will not have a planet to live on and we will not even be here because Mother Nature will wipe us out and take us off the face of the earth and then we won't even be able to fight between each other anymore because we won't be here. Yeah, no, I... I... That resonates uh, to to the brand of Eclectic Spacewalk right on because, I mean, that cooperation and, and kind of the community aspect yeah. of, of really getting beyond what we've been doing for time and memoriam. Like, it has to stop, and if it's not, then, like you said, we, we're digging our own graves. We're you know? digging our own <laughs> graves. I mean, just like the dinosaurs, Mother Nature will wipe us off the face of the earth and we'll be a distant memory. I don't know who will remember us if we're not here anymore. And it's like, will any of this have mattered? All the money, all the buildings, all the things that we strive for to achieve. Will any of this matter if there's no one here to remember it? It's a very good point. But then also you you would have to say this. That's exactly why like space exploration and other things of like things past Earth of like, so, so for instance, the Voyager spacecrafts, like that's the only things that are in space that are, you know, basically going out of the solar system that have any mark of humanity. Human. You know what yeah, I mean? taking like, what we've done out. And, <laughs> just in case there's somebody exactly. else out there, we were here. This is our music. These are our books. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's you wonder. Yeah, we're sending that information out, but will it even resonate no, with whoever totally. else is out there? No, it's that question that you can't even answer. Mm-hmm. It's a question that you pose, but there's no answer to it. It's well, like, it's, it's it's levels. You know, again, like it, it, to get out of say the Milky Way galaxy yeah. and then to the other galaxies around. It's like the, there's just levels of, or scales of magnitude, you know, and it just, but in, in all of that thing, um, the infinity of sorts can like, as you said, kind of be pushed through, through our own subjective kind of see how we, we see this reality. Like, cause I, mine is my own, yours is your own and everyone else's. But at the same time, if we don't kind of get together then who knows what what history looks like or history tells us what it looks yeah, like there well, you it go yeah yeah very good <laughs> history has shown us that if we don't get it together it's not going to be a very bright future cool so uh we're going to come back here in a couple minutes after a short break uh for millicent gonna read us some poetry so we'll be back thanks hey everyone welcome back to eclectic spacewalk conversations uh i'm here with millicent alley author and poet so uh, we just went back through her background and how this came to be, but now we're just going to listen to s- some poetry from her. So take it away. Okay, Sunday. 
We conversed about me being inspired from above. Yes, it is true, but I'm also moved by lust and love, the carnal desires of the flesh, the pleasures of this body's experience. Happily, I invited him in. He politely peeled away the layers, having foreplay with my mind. He was possessed of himself, always in control, even in my midst. A mental shield covered the passion submerged, bubbling underneath the surface. It was my freedom he yearned for, so I allowed him to kiss it. From my freedom he rose, it dripped from his lips. Through my garden he plundered, leaving me with a newfound feeling of wonder. My match, perhaps, he knew the art of tantalizing the thoughts. An astute discerner, he had the gift to view deeply. Our association was more than I believed it would be. A day full of ease, enjoying each other's company. No care for where any of it would lead. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Sunday's such a great, like, day of rest type of thing. <laughs> Even if you don't believe day in the biblical. Day of rest and pleasure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We, uh, I have a thing on Sundays. It's kind of like a reggae Sunday. So it's like, you know, kind of those good vibes. Oh, and, and God. Like that. I it's only just... listen to reggae music on vacation. <laughs> well, it seems strange. It's like you need to have like cocktails and be by the beach right. in Jamaica somewhere on like, a, you know, an island listening to reggae. But I love that you so do what, reggae what, for, So for self, what, what do you do for self-love, self-care? You know, because Sundays are usually that kind of day of rest, you know, like. Um, do you do many petty? Like what? what not, I don't even consider that self. Yeah. That's like just what, maintenance. What maintenance. That's yeah. just basic, like <laughs> ground zero. If you're not doing that, we got problems. Sure. But um, self love, self care. Lately, mm-hmm. I don't know if I've had much of it lately. I've been in this work mode lately because I'm taking care of things and getting a whole bunch of things off my plate. Sure. So I'm at like zero debt zero anything so that i can go back into this creative headspace oh, so that i'm not working as much mm-hmm. and so that i can like have three days to myself to write and do whatever so this year and part of last year that's what's been going on with me um because i have great plans of writing i have the screenplay and these characters are in my mind and they're bothering me and they won't leave me alone so you really have to have that i have to get outlet. them out yeah they're they're taking up space in my mind and i see their world and they want to share their story and so mm-hmm. i have to get them out in order to make space for something else so Good. yeah so taking care of myself is taking care of financial things to clear my plate and and get to where I can be creative and and express and be happy because I feel a sense of joy when I'm able to get things out of me and put them down especially if you have a a track record of catharsis of writing you know it's like it's almost like you have to then do it yeah because it's me working out things sure personally like some of this is partly my story and then I've added a little fictional zest yeah a little zest to move the story along but a lot of this first story is sure me okay so that's sunday so then we'll go to the next one i think is mass morality mass morality yeah there's a lot of people acting like this in the world today honey they are like not really um yeah this is this is 
this is, this is 2019. Like, and this is super poignant. <laughs> this is super yeah. poignant as to yeah. what's going on in the world today. Totally. I mean, you see these people in your life all the time, but yeah. you know, it's 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 different when you see them like running the world and stuff. And then it's really scary. Mm -hmm. So this is mass morality. Imposters parade in broad daylight, pretending to be what they are not, portraying abstract, idealized characters, saying whatever is necessary to fraud and sham. But unable to behave continually in character, their costumes slowly unravel, revealing to the keen observer glimpses of the bone beneath their deceits. The masqueraders caught on cloth lash out, denying any wrongdoing, claiming for themselves a new role. In an instant, they become the victims of extenuating circumstances void of any responsibility. And you, who discovered their facade or cast as the scoundrel in the drama for seeing through it, for, net, for demanding that the disguised ones don a cloak of accountability. How dare the rest of us require truth, honesty, and common humanity? Is not life challenging enough without those in our sanctum ascribing to betrayal, conspiring against us? Their cross is not mine to bear, only witness. Therefore, I bless them. Keeping my mind focused and upright, I arrive at the only conclusion I can. I must forgive them as I want to be forgiven because in truth, they understand not what they do. Mm. And that, that last line, they understand not what they do. I mean, that's obviously an homage to the biblical thing of Jesus on the cross mm -hmm. saying to, hey, mm -hmm. forgive them, Lord, for, you know, they, they do not know what they do. Yeah. And it's like that, it's, I mean, obviously that area of forgiveness comes in, but what is kind of, what would you say, like, what comes to your mind right now when you think mass morality? Is it like, persons if it is it groups is it or is it just like kind of an indifference to you know kind of the bullshit of life because uh, uh, like you were saying in the it's uh, all encompassing yeah, it's, like, it's in the bullshit of life stuff. it's what's going on in america it's how we haven't dealt with this country and its history that's a good point yeah. um and it's 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 personal you see people like this in your life and they're this is how they're living their life and you're like fuck how are you functioning how are you getting by in this world like who is dealing with you because I see these people coming and I have a good BS radar and I like go the other direction I don't have drama like people like this this was more of me seeing people from a distance acting like this actually let me take that back I've had a few drama people like this in my life but when I was younger and then this is now seeing those drama people from a distance heading my way and knowing how to avoid them. Right. But this is also just basically with our, our leadership in the country. That's what I was going to kind of point to as politicians. Because um, yeah, then it, it's like the red, the red states and things like that, they, they're one thing, they say they're pro-life in, in one area, of, and, then, and then they're and not. And they're killing you know, people yeah. and giving you the Doesn't death make penalty. Sense. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's like, like <laughs> when you're in the womb and you can't speak for yourself, we, we care. And then as soon as we bring you into this world and we put you in into these circumstances mm -hmm. then when you make mistakes we're not going to try to rehabilitate you we're going to just take your life but human life means so much yeah, but it doesn't yeah. mean anything once you get here and you're a yeah. fully formed adult so it's a, it's a, it's a, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense my friend who is more conservative tried to he he not tried he explained it to me and I was like I get 
how the explanation it goes, mm-hmm. it still doesn't make any sense. Right. Life, if life is valuable, it's valuable from birth to death. For sure. It's not valuable in certain cases that you want to make yeah, it you valuable. Can't you well, can't again, pick and choose. Again, but that's that mass morality of sorts because it's like, oh, well, in this case, because we just do that, well, then it's okay. Well, it's circumstantial. <laughs> it's circumstantial yeah. morality. It's like in there, certain that's a specific yeah. cases when this and this happens and all the things are formed just right. But tell me a little bit, so not, not to cut off, but then the poem right before that is Judas. And so that's a little bit of a different kind of thing because Judas is, not, you know... It comes up it with circumstances. Yeah, it was yeah, someone, someone really close to you. Exactly. And so, so that is literally about a friend who was really close to me, and that's, that's right, right. And then so, but that's different than mass morality because it's almost like in a mass, you're literally going above and beyond. You know what I mean? Like you're trying to. Deceive. Well, you're trying to fool a lot of people yeah. when it's mass morality. This is yeah. like someone being on a world stage, collectively lying to right people. And Judas is about a single person lying and pretending to a single person. Mm-hmm. It's just like Jesus. Judas was the one who portrayed him, and he was one of the disciples. Right, right. So that's how it got the title. It's someone near and dear to you betraying you. But at the ultimate level is forgiveness, though, like as you said, because for you, you know, they know not what they do in both cases in the grand scheme. You know, in the grand like, scheme of it's things, it's like you have yeah. to forgive that this is. The things that are external factors that are happening to you and that you don't have, you know, a way to deal with them necessarily. Well, forgiveness was really important for me because I remember when I was not necessarily the nicest person and people forgave me. Oh, okay. And so it was always really important to me. You don't necessarily have to forget and you don't necessarily have to be like crazy and invite someone who's, you know, drama Mm -hmm. or toxic back into your world, but you can release the energy and the animosity behind what they did to right, you and right. wish them to bet the best and hope that they definitely find their way as mm-hmm. you were able to be forgiven by others and then now you've come full circle and become better and found sure. your way. So we each have to give that to each other for us to become better people and better versions of ourselves. It's not just I did it. You should be able to do it. I was able to do it because someone gave it to me. Right. And so you have yeah. to extend that to Giving every person. Yeah. yeah. It has to be reciprocal. It's yeah. full circle. Yeah. Okay. So moving on from, from those, and I think the next one is 11408. If oh, yeah. I think that's such is a that good right? one. I think you've. No, is that one? No. We're going out of order now. <laughs> no, I think it's a. Uh, which one? It's either that or... Oh, sorry. I'm a... Ascension. That's what I meant. Yeah. Ascension. So right after... Well, we can talk briefly, I guess, if you if you have something to say. Is 11408 is when Obama is elected. Yeah. And so, t- I mean, I guess you can just talk some commentary about that. Um. So, you know, this country has a very colorful history. <laughs> I never thought... And I'm, I'm not even old. I never thought yeah. I would see a black man as president. Sure, like, sure. never in my lifetime. I was like, they're never going to let it happen. Like, it's never going to happen. And so just the, the magnitude of that and just the emotion and the welling up because I don't think my grandparents ever thought yeah, they totally. would see it and they saw it in their lifetime. I don't think my parents ever thought. It just wasn't a possibility. It's interesting because you live in a world, in a country, and they say, America's the greatest country in the world. And you're like, really? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Be- people haven't dealt with that history as we've talked about. And know? as a black person mm-hmm. and as a black woman, I'm a double minority. I'm black <laughs> sure. and I'm a woman. I'm in two minority groups. Yeah. Um, you see, you live in two worlds. You live in the world that is black and then you live in the greater world that is black, white, and everybody else. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it's still a white world. Mm-hmm. And so you have to learn to exist in both worlds mm-hmm. and go back and forth between them so that you can succeed. Sure. Um, well, I saw a lot of that in the South. You know? Yeah, like in it, the South, yeah. you have to exist in two worlds. It and depends. so it's interesting when you see people who are told that they can do anything and they're the best and everything they do is great and you're told the opposite, then to see someone come mm-hmm. along and show that you really can be just, you're just as good and you can be just as great despite what these people are telling you or saying about you and not to let anything get in your way. You might have to work harder. You might have to be better. Well, I think, and that's what one of the things of, that's why it's not saying that I give necessarily Obama a pass on things, but like for me as a journalist and looking back at like objective records and his things on drones and the whistleblowers, it's like, okay, we can, you know, some of that mass morality comes in. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like that is a watershed moment, yeah. period, on an entire culture of people oh, yeah. that have been underrepresented for time immemorial since, Not you know. underrepresented. You know, oh, no, I mean, obviously, like taking the slaves. Yeah, straight up. Oppressed, yeah. targeted and oppressed yeah. completely. And the thing is, I don't agree with everything sure, Obama did. As, as no one, I don't no, think should. You, don't, you if should. You're logical, you, you know? If you're logical, yeah. I don't agree with everything. And I don't think he was just amazing because he was black. But just the fact that he was able to rally people around him mm-hmm. to come out and vote in those numbers. Absolutely. Insane. Yeah, insane what he did. Insane yeah, yeah, yeah. what he did. Because during the first term, he brought people together. Well, that was a proof of concept almost yeah. of like, hey, we can actually get people out and voting and doing things against what we seem to be like the existing power structure yeah. of like white patriarchy and those Yeah, and of he got young kids out who were apathetic and who Very didn't true. care, who felt like they had been forgotten and nobody was listening to them. And they always they always underestimate the young people. Anytime there's really a movement or revo- revolution, it's always the young people course, who get yeah. it started. But then they kind of write them off and act like they're not going to show up, they're not going to do anything, mm-hmm. and then they got their ass handed to them. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you look at it because it's like, well, then it's that bounce back effect or that pendulum swing back because yeah. it's like, okay, we're all good and everything's great and gravy, you know, with Obama. And then you get someone like as antithetical as as Trump and then all of a sudden, oh. you know, Obama looks like a saint. When, you know, whatever you want to say about him, it doesn't really matter. It's like just by the sheer fact that Trump is around and doing what he's doing, you, the guy looks like a saint, you know what I mean? Like a formalized person that's, that's not a child, you know what It I mean? just like, is like there was sanity <laughs> in the world. I don't know if saint's going a little far, but you're right, like, right, right, wow. Sure. But the, was some sanity and some intelligence where I feel like now we've entered the age of anti-intelligence. Oh, that's a good point. Idiocracy and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, like it's like hip to be dumb and I'm like who thought of that shit it yeah I know I hip to be dumb or when it's too much of like saying like oh I'm not interested I don't read and it's like when you are saying that and championing that it's like okay I get, I get that but like you want to be known as someone who just doesn't learn but that's or what read I'm saying. it's like wait it's, what it's an air of anti-intelligence <laughs> and it's really interesting but you know Obama represents so many things uh, for black people or underrepresented people and Trump is a product of 
the good old American history right. of swinging that pendulum lashing back. <laughs> like they were so mad that a yeah. black man did this. And then they say he wasn't going to get elected again. And then he got elected again. It was another slap in their face. And so now they're basically strategically undoing every oh, single yeah. thing that he Absolutely. did to try to wipe his legacy away. So to make like he didn't exist. And it's impossible to wipe him away. Yeah. Because just like you said, the mere presence of Trump makes what happened before mm -hmm. him even greater and even more paramount mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to our story. And if anything, Trump's going to get wiped away. Right. Hopefully, because yeah, people are going to yeah. want to forget this time. Hopefully it's that other bounce back. Well, like, shit, when you go, ridiculous. well, hindsight is 2020 <laughs> right, right, and 10 right. or 15 years down the road, we're going to, people are going to be so embarrassed. They're going to want to forget that this time in history ever right. happened. And I think that, well, that's already happening now when like you look at people who are like from not from around here like in other countries they're already looking at us like they think we're doing? out of our like... freaking <laughs> minds when you go to other places they think we're crazy. Right. So okay so we've gotten done with that. Um, now this is the last poem of the life section. This is one of my favorite ones and it's, it's one of your shortest ones but uh, yeah. I think it'll kind of radiate through so take it away. Ascension. The past is history Uncertainty is the certain mystery. Within the mystery unfolds tremendous untold possibilities. For the unknown is our friend, having no beginning, having no end. Mm. So, so concise. <laughs> yeah, I think it's the shortest thing I've ever written. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good because I think uncertainty and the unknown, it's something that you, we all have to deal with, just like we were talking about death before. You know, it, it's almost r random. You know, you have to... Just deal with the things that it, you can't control, and yeah, that's it. That's a to tough pill to swallow, you know. It's hard to let go of because, as human beings, we like to control and think mm -hmm. we can manipulate, or not even to just influence things and hedge them our way. And that's not always true. Sometimes you just have to give over to what's happening around you and find something within that that you can hold on and to. And can't that be a form of catharsis too? Because you letting go, you're like letting go of those burdens and those kind of things that you want to get, get away with. Yeah, there's it's that right. old saying, yeah. let go and let God. It's like, oh, yeah, whatever, yeah, right, right. I can't, what's, what's beyond my power, I have to let something greater than me kind of come in and trust in the process or trust in the journey and, yeah. and, and let things unfold as they, as, they, as they are. Right, right. Okay, so then, uh, so that's it for life. Yeah, then we um, go into the love, love section. Okay, so let's go into love then. And then, yeah, we got one, 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 one poem from love. Yeah, I think because I wanted to, because I, in the next ones, you kind of show that duality because, like, <laughs> it, it's not that it repeats; it's just that you're saying a lot of literally uh, around the same. You know, you're 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 saying, okay, this person is like great in these ways, but then, man, they need to work on it in this, and it's actually the things that I've been dealing with. <laughs> All of us are works yeah. in progress. Okay, this is in the love section. And this is called World's End. The evidence of his parents' indulgence, confident and casually assured, was he. Selfish, spoiled, and quietly arrogant, he existed only to please himself. He camouflaged his background with the meager appearance he chose, wearing it as if it belonged to him. This facade meant to keep groundlings away. Drawn to his beauty and charisma, I entered his world with no invitation, believing myself the predator, ready to prey upon his amazing energy which emerged from a foreign place unlike anyone I had ever envisioned. 
He took me from tranquility to rage, where he resided simultaneously, alive at both ends of the spectrum, a wild expression of extremes, the very definition of internalized chaos, a live example of the destructive nature of those who devalue their lack of limitation, the culmination of an undisciplined spirit bound by a physical shell. He, unable to grasp the relentlessness of his pursuit of self-persecution, was vexed by my attempts to claim his anguish. He desperately believed in his rage and dwelling inside it. And soon I discovered my love could not soothe him, a discovery which ruined me. Seeds of contempt grew out of my heart. I was despondent, clutching the remains of our bond. In a final attempt, I descended upon his presence and spoke. We cannot continue if you persist in this manner. You deploy cruelty and madness. You ask my heart to accept what is unacceptable. You attempt to convince me to go against my principles and you ask me to be satisfied with your mere drippings. You must cease and desist for as definitely as I am a woman, I will revolt with all that I possess. My love will sour and you will desire its sweetness loss. You will miss the comfort of my arms and then it will be too late. To my desperate plea, with the mind of a man, he laughed. And that was the end of us. So this is a great poem at the end of love section to then basically encapsulate all the other love um, poems. And it really dawns on me like the duality of dealing with someone's insecurities and what they're dealing with, but then also you're going through your own. You know, and yeah. so how do you how do you deal with those kinds of things? Well, it, this this poem was about um, someone not wanting to work to become better while I was working on myself, and so it's hard to be in a relationship with some relationship with someone who is willing to just be and having all these issues and not even being honest enough with themselves to acknowledge them. Mm -hmm. You can't move forward or do anything with someone who won't acknowledge anything's happening. And so it was being stuck and saying, you know, you're asking me to accept things that are beneath me or not. I'm not, that are not worthy of me. And you think that's okay. And if you keep thinking that, then we're not going to be together. And I don't think this person really thought I would leave. And Mm -hmm. so he was just like, You've been here all this time. You're not going anywhere. And that was the final straw. Mm. And And then, as you said, and that was the end of us. Yeah, that was the end of us. But that, again, was not the end of you. It wasn't the end of me. It It was me finally coming into my own and knowing my worth and knowing my value and saying that I'm not going to accept this Mm -hmm. and I'll walk away from you even though I love you I'll walk away from this because someone else is going to love me the way I deserve to be loved I think that's a hard thing because when you're really in love with someone and you see the hardest thing is to see someone's potential and them not living up to their Mm. potential and seeing that they're really amazing but they're letting other things get in the way of them being this amazing Mm. person that you get glimpses of right if they were a total fuck up it's easy to leave lost potential is a big oh the biggest thing is unfulfilled potential Mm -hmm. it's so sad (laughs) 
Okay. And then so we move on from love into introspection. Ooh, yeah. I, like I love this. looking at myself in the mirror <laughs> trying to see what's going on. Um, but as we talked about in the beginning, um, we talked about, you know, you improving your humanity. But then you started in the in the preface or the about section, and I'll preface this before you read the the, the profession, I guess, is, is the next poem that you'll read. But um, I remember, I am a spiritual being experiencing a physical life. The sages teach us that our primary purposes are to inspire, to create, to be of service, and to love. With myself intact, I can become a vessel of brilliant light to illuminate, looking inward to help outward. And so that's that's very beautiful in the sense of, again, we've talked about the death, rebirth of ego, but then how is that introspection really like transformed how it's been a pillar obviously you look at it so you looked inside to then deal with the world outside I mean I've constantly been examining myself my whole life uh I don't know how to do anything without starting with myself first Mm -hmm. I don't understand anything else but again I was an only child so everything was just me in a space me with myself there weren't any distractions like I said I was a latchkey kid before there was even a term and my mom worked all the time so I was just kind of like do 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 hey Millicent what's going right. on with you you know it was one of those things so um I was always looking internally to hopefully answer some questions about what was going on outside of me sure um and trying to see what what I was contributing to creating my outside world. Because they say it all starts with you. Your exterior is a reflection of your interior. Right, right. Um, and so, yeah, so it's always been a, a question, 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 and examining. I don't think I'll ever stop examining myself or, you know, searching for... No, no, and that, but that goes into why what you're doing, though, because as yeah. in the next poem that you yeah. read is, is the profession. And then this shows what you are, you know, like as you are, at least what you're striving to be. Yeah. Okay. So in the section of introspection, Mm -hmm. the profession, I am a storyteller. I am a verbal stylist. I'm a linguistic expressionist. I am an urgent philosopher, highlighting, spotlighting, and enticing you with my perspective on the human condition and all its idiosyncrasies. I splatter my attentions on the page, display the beauty of thoughts and emotions. I capture the oddity of a single moment for you to see and give you permission with my words to analyze your world in its juxtapositions as through the eyes of a stranger. Where you are afraid to venture, I find adventure, and from there I may pose the complex questions, perhaps make you think, thereby emancipating you opening up your mind, becoming your mirror image. I am a poet, do you see? But I am more than that. I am a collector of life, data, and memories. That's so good. And so do you think your experience, like your profession, like do you think of yourself now as a storyteller still? Um, yeah. I have to get over the hump of writing a longer story, of doing a screenplay or a book, which is on the list right now and in the works. But I'm definitely a storyteller. Even my friends are like, Millie, you tell such great stories. You should do one of these storytelling things. And I'm like, when I'm talking to friends, it's just coming out naturally. But I do think... even in my poems, my style is that of a narrator. Mm, it's right. of 
telling a story kind of above it and in it at the same like a time. conscientious observer. Yeah. You're just there, like I'm, flying the wall. I'm yeah. there. Even, even, even the style of how I write sure. is kind of like that. I'm mm-hmm. like telling a story for you to like see through my eyes and be like in my space. So yeah, um, I don't know how to be anything else but a storyteller. That's good. Well, then, then it seems like you know you've kind of encompassed that and continued on that. So. Yeah, I just need to get the structure and the regimented things together for the screenwriting. Well, but I think a lot of that is like in the process, even like you know doing the things like this, getting reinvigorated and and, and everything. So it, yeah, it's all, it is, all comes. <laughs> this is definitely reinvigorating <laughs> me and getting me like okay, I have to get back into my writing again. So we'll briefly go from from that to basically a very personal poem uh, apology yeah and so this is uh, dealing with your mother and so I'll just let you kind of go from there okay apology regardless of the lack of intercourse and the inconsistency of our relationship I must announce that I love you mother my love for you reigns paramount despite the absurdities of our past which bind us in a pedigree of dysfunction neither you nor I are to blame for the mishaps of our ancestors. The past is beyond both you and me. I can reflect on the choices made by our family and its parental predecessors with empathy. I avow the cycle must be broken. Thus, I hold none accountable unless I hold myself accountable. Do you do the same, mother? Nothing less than children of God learning from our choices. Forgiveness is the only way to free ourselves from emotional, familial bondage. Fallen from grace we have if we are unwilling to release the past and move ahead. So, mother, let us forgive and forget. If we do not, it will be our life's greatest regret. Very powerful stuff. It seems like, uh, again, like the kind of duality comes into mm. a lot of things of hey, let's, this is our past, let's live and forget, but then let's come anew, you know, let's get something that's bigger than this or yeah. better than this, what we've doing. Yeah. <laughs> if, only, if, only people, if only people could live up to what's on the page sometimes. Of course, yeah. of course. Sometimes it's easier to write people on paper and, and, and hope they uh, can live up to something than what actually happens in, in real life. Right. But then again, I think the forgiveness aspect comes and radiates through. As the, like, oh, always, you know. always. You know, I have a deep love for my mother. Uh, she has been a great influence on me. She's part of the reason I write, strangely enough. Yeah. Uh, a big part of the reason of my childhood and forming this love. I have a love. I think writing for me is more than anything a love of words Mm -hmm. she created in me a love of words i love language and i love words and i love the power of words people talk about pictures being the most powerful thing in the world but i think words are because within words you can create your own vision even Mm -hmm. with the words within that a picture tells you exactly Mm -hmm. what it is Mm -hmm. words you get to use your imagination and concoct what that word picture looks like in your mm, mind. I see what you're saying. That's interesting. Yeah, and it comes from environment, walk of life, because what I might tell you a character looks like, you can still envision that character in your mind and it'll look slightly different than what I envision right, in my right. mind. It's kind of the it, rainbow thing. Yeah, like everyone yeah. sees a different rainbow. Okay. 
So going to the last one in our introspection process, I really love this, and this kind of is right on Eclectic Spacewalks, you know, kind of brand and, and everything is like the lifelong process. So yeah. we'll get into to that probably after, but uh, why don't you read the lifelong process? Okay. Also in introspection, the lifelong process. The outer appearance of things does not sustain, nor does it suffice as nourishment for the soul. Only when the world descends does the trek begin. The rest is but a waking dream. The totality of everything of this world means nothing once you discern its bewitchment. Then the temperamental human ego crashes and forgiveness and love are raised upon its throne. This is what the prophets of the ages have told of. Not a distant heaven far away, but a heaven here on earth. The joy that resonates from inside oneself, no man can take from you. The task assigned to all of us is to stay in this awareness every single day, despite the thieves who lie to us with the perception of the senses. Thus, we extricate ourselves from karma and take the first steps along the path of enlightenment. I really love that end because, you know, the path of enlightenment, what, what does that mean? And, and for me, like a lot of it is, you know, Aristotelian philosophy of only knowing, the only thing I know is I know nothing, yeah. you know, and, and that is something that a lot of people, it, it's so overwhelming because it, they kind of put it towards like school or things like that. And it's like, but life is a process and life is a school in itself. Yeah. It's never going to end until you are ending. And then at that point, well, it's nothing, you know, yeah, it's it's nothing. your death. So, so talk about that. Um, for me, it definitely is exactly that's the lifelong process. Yeah. It's it's me um, finding my place in the world. It's me attempting not to get caught up mm -hmm. in um, what is uh, advertised to us. Mm -hmm. So this is what life should look like. Sure. These are the things you should have. This is, you know, how things should be for all of us. Your husband, your 1.2 kids, mm. this car, this house, this, this, it's, it's me trying to see past that and, and, and make my own path and my own journey that is deeply personal to me that I don't have to follow what society tells us should happen at this point and this point and this right. point in my life and, and living as a, authentically as I can. Um, but also, um, having some kind of, a spiritual awareness in the living process mm -hmm. me being awake mm -hmm. sort of speak that this is a waking dream and mm -hmm. that you can make of it whatever your mind can uh, believe and create right and then even if you get to that kind of low low point like as the next poem we're going to go to in uh, in the section of god is lazarus you know and it's like that that right there is is so such a biblical thing of again the rebirth of sorts you know that some someone is is literally dead and then there's this idea that you know you come back and whether or not that that actually happened or not the no. idea of the phoenix or the Ar arboros yeah. and the things that we've been talking about the rebirth well i think hopefully through your life you have phases and mm -hmm. through each phase a new evolution comes out mm -hmm. and that's a sort of like a that. rebirth um because i 
you know, you're one way in your 20s and then you hopefully evolve a little bit and you're another way in your 30s and then the same thing, like mm-hmm. your 40s and then your 50s. And I think that's a part of, of the lifelong process. You're constantly evolving and becoming, hopefully, better versions of yourself sure. or more informed versions of yourself or more self-aware versions of yourself. Right, whatever you kind of need. Yeah, whatever you kind of need on your own journey. <laughs> so why don't you uh, read Lazarus for us? Lazarus. Like yeah, and this one's in God. Yes. Okay, in the God section, Lazarus. I entered into a solemn quarantine to awake from my life-lived slumber. I proceed into darkness to shut the bright world out. The stillness of the silence deafened me to all the words whispered in the wind. Nothing is ever lost, nor can anything outside oneself be found. That's great. So nothing is ever lost, nor can anything outside oneself be found. It's beautiful. So in that kind of regard, it kind of shows the infinity of sorts, you know, the the ultimateness is that you can, you know, nothing is ever lost when it's all contained, you know, in the infinity of sorts. It's so interesting because I write about these things and you would think I have all these things figured out. I don't. Absolutely not. <laughs> but these are the things that I'm always impressing upon myself to um, work harder at trusting in um, something outside of myself mm-hmm. that is a spiritual intelligence or a universal intelligence mm-hmm. and also trusting what is inside of myself at the same time. Right. And then so uh, trusting yourself is the, going into the next one is the distant beyond. This is another good short one that kind of talks about, you know, again, the infinity of sorts, the greatest. Okay. Well, this is also in, in God. In God, yeah. <laughs> is... It's about the spiritual place. <laughs> the distant beyond. Spirit is the cradle from which we are born, the source of our origin, obscure and unknown, Incarnated into the physical, I tread across the ticking minutes, but Father Time is not truly yours nor mine. His sand slipped through our hands and the hourglass with the dissipation of a quiet storm until we yield to the paradoxical omega to which we must return. Hmm. I like that. Father Time is not truly yours nor mine. That's beautiful because that's, again, going back, harkens back to our mortality. And yeah, I'm always thinking about that. I was like, one day I'm going to be dead and this is going to be gone. Well, it, I mean, but then so, so in some way, shape, or form, that kind of, I think, uh, group psychologists have said that that's like the only reason why people. It really, propels you. Yeah, is gets up in the morning to do anything. It propels you to do you know stuff. That, yeah, know. it's like this, this, this ticking clock or the stopwatch. Right, right. You know, like either you get it done or that's it. Right. Well, then in this next poem, we've kind of been going up to and going up to is the immortal. So again, this harkens back to, you know, the infinity and sorts that, you know, we're all immortal in some, some ways. So why don't you take it from there? Okay. Um, immortal. Tears I shed no more for this life and its ubiquitous continual passing. Death is but a changing of the guard. What pertinent reason is there to mourn? infinity while our temporary identities meet their demise the gist of you and me blows across the winds of eternity it is ours the opportunity to be born but the edict of the natural universe dictates for every beginning there is an end so once memories of this earthly experience have been gathered assembled and preserved in the sanctuary of the ethos 
to the invisible from which we came, we all must return. It's mm. beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> I love that the gist of you and me blows across the winds of eternity. Because then that also talks about, you know, all the people who have never wrote something or, you know, and, and are forgotten by history. Because in the 200,000 years that Homo sapiens have been around, I think there's been 10.5 billion people. So it's like, that's a lot of people that had Well, no... we're all a part of the human oh, sure. collective consciousness. Exactly. And so all of us are here in one way or another through this, whatever this new <laughs> consciousness is that we are. And, you know, we build upon everything that has happened before and pre- preceded us. Mm-hmm. And so everyone's here. Right. No, I, I love that. So the immortal. And then so lastly... Um, this is the last poem of the entire collection called Eternal Hymn. And yes. really love this in the sense that, you know, it's it's really the duality of you and a person being subjected to this and then also the internal external environment. So then that yin and yang. And so um, what we'll do is I'll read the first two stanzas and then you can come in and read the last two stanzas. And then that'll be kind of a, a good little co-poem uh, reading, if okay. you will. So, eternal hymn in God. The infinity of my existence is you. I belong to no other. You are the source of my very being, my reason to live, to view another dawn, to see the sunset, to live my life long. I am the expression of your love through all space and time. I carry you with me. I am yours and you are mine. Never have you deserted nor left me on my own, not even in my most shameful hours of wrong. Your knowledge is more than I can fathom. I could love no other as you do me. But still my spirit searched through varying degrees of unrest. I cried out in pain, screamed, demanded, and confessed. I had abused myself and taken this life for granted. Yet you did not forsake me, refused to turn your back on me. And I asked for your forgiveness. I, your loving daughter, now a woman. You have shared with me so much and you continue to give. Because of you, a blessed life I live. This choice of free will, mine to create, who I was and who I am, I have trust and faith in you, comprehending finally, only the good is true. So the infinity of my existence is you. I mean, you're kind of, at least, maybe not purporting to say that you know God or what it is or not, but you're at least acknowledging. And that's pretty, you know, Yeah, powerful. there's something outside of me that, I mean, I can't be oblivious to all the people <laughs> here in this wonderful planet we get sure. to live on. And so there's some infinite universal intelligent that Big Bang Theory, whatever you want, that, you know, we're here and life's pretty darn good. Yeah, it's comparatively. Good. Yeah. Comparatively. I mean, you know, we could be in some hellish third world country struggling for water and just like walking 15 miles for school. But right. I mean, as Americans, we definitely have a pretty good standard of living with all the stuff that is happening. Well, and I think that's what, I mean, the American dream type, type thing is so interesting because like we've kind of experienced it and but then in other places there it is mad max you know it is it is a third world country etc and so what my thing is my entire goal is to just try and make about as many people as i can to have the upbringing and life i've had because again it's been very privileged very you know the fact i even live in the united states as you were talking about that alone gets you you know a a bunch of check marks that somewhere in the world just doesn't give you it's interesting so i never felt american most of my life, right. I always felt like I was just 
a black girl from Georgia. Mm-hmm. Like I never really thought. And when I started traveling, really when I've like went outside the U.S. and I went to like Turkey and different places and went overseas, and then you're like, "Damn, I'm really American!" <laughs> like I, culturally, yeah, everything. Culturally about me is American and right. then it sits in you in a different way because I felt kind of separated mm-hmm. being from the South and being America there's this kind of love hate with this country and the things that have happened and so you're here and you're part of it but not really completely a part of mm-hmm. it and then when you leave the States oh yeah you are American <laughs> and you are trying to get back you're trying to right. get back I went to Peru and got sick and I remember thinking Lord Jesus, don't let me die in a third world country. Right, right, Please right. get me back to the doctor of the U.S. Do something. Yeah, yeah that's so. interesting. Okay, well, um, so I'm gonna close out in some of your, uh, some of the text from your conclusion. Okay, I think it really uh, encapsulates like what your kind of thing was. So we'll conclude with this: is I dedicate this book to the universal consciousness, the infinite wisdom, the eternal presence known as God. This presence, which is glorified throughout every religion and race of man, has many names, but which we praise him for the creation of our magnificent world. In this process, despite my ups and downs, I have become more loving, empathetic, and thoughtful. I regret nothing, not a single step along the path, for I needed life's complexities to formulate my journey and life. And then lastly, what life is, I do not know for sure, except that it is what you make of it. On these pages, I have shared my perspectives and my personal struggles. I hope reading this book was as healing for you as writing it was for me. And it has been for me. So thank you, Melissa. You're welcome. Yeah. So great. Well, thank you guys so much for listening to episode one of Conversations from Eclectic Spacewalk. And we'll be with you next time. So until then, add Astra and take care. Eclectic Spacewalk presents Conversations, a podcast about the uniqueness of the human condition and how, through conversation, we can continue to upgrade humanity's value systems.